right. So, um, 1 Thessalonians. It's, it's uh, one of the first letters that we have written to one of the very earliest churches. It was written in about 50 AD, and that's about, you might think that's 50 years after Jesus died, that's actually about 20 uh, years after Jesus died um, by our best comparison with historical records. Thessalonica was a, the capital city of the region of Macedonia. It was a big deal in its area, and it was a wonderful thing that God used that church in an influential way. As, so as we've been looking through Thessalonians this term, we've seen God's goodness to the region through how he's been working uh, in this one church in particular. But it's, a, it's, uh, it's not unique in how he's been working this church, but it is praiseworthy. In chapter 1, we saw Paul commend the Thessalonian church um, for their work of faith, their labour of love, and their steadfastness of hope. They are living godly lives. Praise God. In chapter 2, um, Paul reminds them that they have been charged to walk in a manner of w- that is worthy of God, continue to live godly lives. In chapter 3, we see Paul's prayer that God would make them increase and abound in love, and therefore in blamelessness, and holiness, may the power of God increase their godly living. And then in chapter 4, we saw the Thessalonian church is urged all the more to walk in godliness, to show self-control, to abstain from sexual immorality, to love each other well, and live quietly, productive, and fruitful lives. Thessalonians, live a godly life. Live how God says you should live. And so that's why our theme... Our title for this series has been Living a Godly Life. Paul is urging the Thessalonian church and anyone who's reading this letter to live a godly, a godly life. As we wrap up chapter 5, as Anna just read, we have a whole bunch more instructions there and we are going to get into them. But the big question really is, why do we want to live a godly life? What? Thanks, Anna, I will. <laughs> what even is the point? Now, so... Every week we hope we do have some non-Christians visiting us, some people sort of discovering Christianity for the first time, uh, hoping to learn a bit more about what all this is about. And so I expect that we may have some people here who think the instructions in the Bible, live a godly life, that is about getting into heaven or staying out of hell or something like that. It's about not going where you don't want to go or getting to where you do want to go. Is that why we live a godly life? But... um. Actually, that's not the case. Uh, we as Christians believe that none of us are good enough. Uh, none of us live a godly life well enough. None of us are worthy to go to heaven. And so instead, we believe that Jesus saved us by being the only one who lived a godly life, a truly godly life, and died for our sins, took on the punishment we deserve, and imputed his righteousness upon us. All we have to do is believe in him and know we need him and we are saved Christians. We go to heaven before any of this godly life talk even happens. So I think before you are saved, this godly life conversation is useful for understanding that we all need Jesus. But it's not useful to actual salvation. Um... So Paul's desire here, his instructions here, are that we do live a godly life. 
Why is that? Um, another question we might have, seems unrelated, but, but it, it relates. <laughs> A kid might wonder, why do my parents have so many rules? <laughs> like, never ending. It really is, it's almost like they're making them up on the spot, <laughs> right? Um, I've written down some examples here because I am a parent and sometimes I do what feels like making up rules on the spot. Um, don't reach into the cutlery drawer. That seems kind of arbitrary, doesn't it? Don't wave your spoon around when it has food on it. Take your shoes off before coming inside if you've been playing in sand. Don't pull chopping boards off the kitchen counter. Don't jump off the cubby house when your little sister is watching. Do not hit me there. <laughs> Not anywhere really, but especially not there. Um, and so it's the specificity of these rules that really tells the story, isn't it? <laughs> Every rule seems to have a reason, and you can usually imagine what that was. Um, and so these, all, these rules all save really the same purposes. These rules that I've given here can be summed up with love others, don't endanger yourselves. And as adults, we don't really need to be told the don't endanger yourselves part so much, um, but we still need the love others part. Receiving new rules can feel arbitrary and limiting. What do you mean when I'm wrestling my brothers? I cannot punch them. I cannot kick them. No choking. What? That's lame taking all the fun out of it. But as we grow up, as we mature, we see that there is goodness in these rules, that these rules have a purpose, and we don't even really think of them as rules anymore as we grow to understand this is not about parental authority. This is just, it's just good. Yeah. It's just better not to cause harm to each other. In fact, it's even better to do good to each other, isn't it? And so Paul isn't trying to make excellent rule followers. He isn't trying to have us jump through arbitrary hoops to check off an arbitrary checklist, to qualify for an arbitrary reward. Uh, he wants the Thessalonians and us to be tapping into this goodness, the goodness of God's instruction. What he wants for us is something satisfying, life-giving, empowering, and God-glorifying. He desires that we would live godly lives Let's rephrase it a little bit. God-filled lives. So that each and every one of us would fulfill our personal, individualized, God-ordained purpose to glorify our great God. That is our great purpose. Every single one of us, to glorify God. To show the goodness of the creator of all things. He intends to show his goodness to us and through us and in us and the unique ways that he has made us are unique ways that he plans to glorify himself through us. So even though we all have the same purpose, his glory will be worked out in ways that are unique and exciting to discover who knows what God has in store. God has a personalized plan for you. It is for his glory. It is also equally 100% for your joy, because you were created, you were created to be satisfied in him. So, 
um, yes, there are unique ways that that plan will work out. We're going to discover those in all sorts of ways throughout our lives. We've been discovering those throughout our lives. But also, all these unique plans, all these unique purposes are kind of going to conform to some similar patterns here. We know the character of God. We can count on the call to abound in love more and more, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, to apply to all of us. God is love after all. We're all called to self-control and sexual purity, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And in today's passage, we have a bunch more, it looks like 16 instructions that we really are all called to. Um, so we are going to try and dig into them. But I do want to, un- to sort of get us all on the same page that there are no exceptions. We are all called to this godly living because it is good. We should desire it not out of, um, to avoid some sense of shame for having fallen short. The expectation isn't actually that we do this perfectly well in this lifetime, but we should desire it because it is God's goodness to us. Let's dig into it. Let's feast on it. Here it is laid before us. God's goodness to us. But I know that temptation to say, that's not for me. It's all right, I don't need all of that goodness. I'll just take a little bit. If I can also have something else that I think God doesn't actually really want for me. No thanks, I'd rather continue the pursuit of my own glory in my dream job. God will be glorified as well as long as people know I'm a Christian, right? So he'll help me out. No thanks, I'd rather continue to pursue relationships with people who don't love Jesus, who are not interested in a godly life. Surely I can minister to them and evangelize to them better in the intimacy of a romantic relationship, even if they don't love Jesus. No, I don't think I want to uh, give too much of myself to serving others. How about I just keep mind my own business, keep to myself, Let others do their own thing. I'll stay out of their way. I'm doing no harm. What more can reasonably be asked of me? It really is tempting to not be all in on a God-filled life. But Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We're called to Go all in. Deny ourselves. That means letting go of ultimate control over our own lives. So is something stopping you from going all in on a godly life? Is there an ambition you're clinging to? A desire that's hard to let go of? I don't know your heart. I don't know what's going on, but God does. He knows what he's asking you to let go of. He knows what he's asking you to do. And I do know what it's like to actually be afraid that God will take something away that I want or that he'll withhold something from me or that he'll tell me to do something I don't want to do or go somewhere I don't want to go. And he has done all those things in my life. (laughs) And I had no idea they'd be so good. And he'll do it again, because I'm not living a perfectly perfectly godly life. 
even if I desire it. And it will be so good. Again. As it turns out, God, the creator of all, with infinite knowledge, infinite capacity to see everything we're doing and know everything about us, who created us in every detail, as it turns out, he knows us better than we know ourselves. <laughs> and he knows exactly what he's asking for us. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is work, there is a burden, but comparatively it is easy and light. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. God's commands are not burdens. They are a means of goodness to us. They really are life-giving. And so I know I'm spending a lot of time on this point, but as we look back on all of living a godly life in 1 Thessalonians, as we look forward to continuing in God's word today and ever, I really do want us to have this hunger for a God-filled life. If there is one thing you take away from this sermon even though we've got plenty of time to go. <laughs> Let it be a desire to live a God-filled life. No holding back. All right. Let us dig in to some of God's instruction. We've got some godly living laid out before us. As Anna read from 1 Thessalonians 5, from verse 12, that's going to appear up there. Goodness gracious, that's a lot. Um, all right, so we have uh, respect your Christian leaders, uh, live at peace with each other, um, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all, don't repay evil for evil, always seek to do good to one another, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks always. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. That is several sermons worth. Um, and that's part of the beauty of the word, really. I do encourage you to come back to this. We are not going to be able to go in full depth in all of this, but let's try and get what we can out of it right now. Let's take with us a desire to feast on what God has laid before us. Let's dig into what is here. Um, thankfully, this is not a randomised collection of pearls of wisdom. They relate to, to each other. There's a progression. So we can actually group them up something like this. Um, five points. One, be united. Two, mature each other. Three, do good, not evil. Four, look to God. And five, listen to God. Yeah, that's a bit easier to um, wrap our heads around, isn't it? Be united, mature each other, do good, not evil. Look to God and listen to God. Let's just dig in. Be united. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13 say, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labour among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. 
and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, if you are, if you are new to the Bible, um, you might see Paul addressing his brothers as singling out men. He's not at all. In the same way that uh, today we use the word guys, sometimes to mean just men, and sometimes to mean men and women collectively, this, uh, the Greek word here applies to brothers and sisters equally. It's, it's not the same as guys. Guys is kind of like informal and lacks intimacy, whereas to call each other brothers and sisters, it is to say, my family, those who are in my family with me under Jesus... Here is my instruction to you. So keep that in mind as we, as we go forward. Um, all right, so God is calling for peace and unity in, the, unity in this family that he's created, uh, that he is building up under himself. Uh, respecting those who are leading you, I'm not just talking about Josh, Mark and myself, um, the pastors at this church, um, or talking about anyone who is leading your ministry team, anyone who is running a Bible study, anyone who is running a meeting, anyone who is mentoring you. Um, as it turns out, uh, they're working for your good. And if we can enable each other to work for our good, um, that's pretty sweet. So, <laughs> yeah. This is going to be a relatively shallow look at this. There's a whole sermon there, um, and I'm not going to give it right now. But, um, in fact, there was a whole sermon in June. Uh, Damien Greatly um, is part of the Razan community of churches that we are connected to. He preached here over Zoom. It's in our sermon library. If you go back, check it out. He preached on um, this, pa- this verse and uh, got into it in beautiful depth. But what I want to get to here is that um, we are called to peace, proactive peace. And it means giving each other the benefit of the doubt. It means overlooking small offences. It means treating each other with respect, desiring that things go nicely with each other. And there is important context to that as well, and that is point two, mature each other. Let's dig into verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So this call to be at peace among yourselves is not just to live and let live. It um, is to not be caught up in the unhelpful. But we also have a call, all of us, in living a godly life, to help each other live a godly life to encourage each other, to admonish each other. Here's Paul's permission to call each other out. I know he's singling out the idol. That was, uh, we did look at that earlier in the term as well. That was a particular issue in the Thessalonian church. This is a letter to a specific church with specific problems. Um, Admonishing is not only for the idol, but it is something that we need to approach with wisdom. Paul's invitation to admonish each other, is not a license for telling everyone off for every little thing. Be at peace with each other. Encourage, help, and be patient with all. And in fact, the point of this admonishing is the building up and maturing of each other. So it takes thoughtful effort to help each other grow in godliness. The point is not to be right or to win an argument. 
or to come across as clever. The point is always that the other person grows in godliness. If we want to do that, actually, our admonishing is probably going to be gentle, probably going to be considerate of their circumstances. It's going to be protective of their dignity. Please, when you admonish me, remind me that it's in love. Work for it to appear to be in love. And so in, in Proverbs, uh, when we see um, as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another, or the wounds of a friend um, are a blessing or like can be trusted. Okay, excellent. So, so we, we, we are called to be able to receive admonishment well, but in, a, in the interest of each other's growth in godliness, we're also called to admonish well. Even if someone doesn't do it to us perfectly, let's take it well, and let's try to do it to each other in a way that blesses each other. The calling here is, I'm spending a lot of time on admonishment, but uh, Paul gives no emphasis there. He says, admonish just as much as he says, encourage and help. And he says, be patient with all, even though he was applying to specific people with the other ones. And so, um, really, the takeaway here is to mature each other in Christ. Colossians 1, 28 to 29 says, Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's our calling. How are you building up your brothers and sisters in Christ? All right, uh, point three, do good, not evil. Now, that kind of seems like an obvious one, doesn't it? I think no one's going to really object to that. Let's read the verses here. Um, Verse 15 says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And verse 22, at the end of that chunk of instructions, says, abstain from every form of evil. The kind of thing, these are the kind of instructions that seem easy to receive, don't they? Don't do evil to people. Okay. I didn't think I was. But um, I think verse 15 actually makes it harder to not repay evil for evil. What does that mean? That means no payback. Because that's kind of an exception, I think, that we have in our culture. Yeah, I won't instigate evil with anyone. But if I have an opportunity to just kind of get back at someone, that's acceptable, right? (laughs) It's justified. I say, for example, you come back to your car with your two-year-old and um, someone has parked this close to the car door on her side where her car seat is. And so instead of just opening the door as normal to put her in, you've got to take her around the other side and crawl through the back seats with her, put her in, strap her in, climb out again, and come around the front and carefully open your door so as not to damage the car next to you. How careful do you really want to be? (laughs) They got a scratch on their car door. Oh, I guess you shouldn't have parked so close to the car next to you. In case you're wondering, I did not scratch the car. (laughs) I did think about 1 Thessalonians 5.15. No, you did not. I did. Well, this was... 
I mean, I was preparing this sermon, and this is yesterday, so. <laughs> um, see that no one repays evil for evil. Paul is specifically calling out what might look like a natural exception to abstain from evil, do good to all, except no, not accept. Just don't. In fact, it's more than that. It's not just to not do evil. It's to do good to all, to everyone. Paul specifies the church and everyone else, just in case you were wondering. Uh, Jesus says this in more clarity in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 31. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Goodness gracious. And as you, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And it's interesting that Jesus' very famous golden rule here, do to others as you'd have them do to you, is in the context of talking about how you love your enemies. It's not just to the stranger or the friend or the acquaintance, to those who would do evil against you. Do to them as you would have them do to you. even to those who would just park so incredibly close to your door. Like, the amount of precision required, it's... it's, But you know what? What can I do to love you? Can I take your trolley for you? Paint the scratch. Paint the scratch. That's right. Anyway, I didn't do anything. I didn't see the driver. So, but, so But this is what we're called to, isn't it? to actively love in response to anything. Love your enemies. Repay evil to no one. Do good to all. All right, how are we doing? We are, we are um, still on track to get through all five sermons worth. <laughs> Point four, look to God. Verses 16 to 18, rejoice always, Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. When Paul says to rejoice always, he really means in the worst kind of circumstances. Now, this is quite early on. We don't have a rec- We know he went to prison a whole bunch, right? Our earliest records of him having gone to prison are after writing this letter, but we see him live that out in prison, in beatings, in being sent out from cities, He rejoices always. Whatever he'd endure, he'd rejoice. Praise be to God. And so maybe this is a good opportunity to say that this godly life, this God-filled life, this abundant life that Jesus talks about is not, was probably not, a prosperous life. It is not an easy life. It is not a cushy life. It is not health and wealth. We can just look at the example of the apostles to know that's not the case. It is the privilege of being God's instruments of goodness to the world until he calls us home. And the more we understand that privilege, the more we rejoice. And so I call this section Look to God because it's all about looking to God in all circumstances. When we look to him and his purposefulness in all things, we can rejoice always. 
When we look to him and see that he is personal and that he listens to us, that he delights in each of our individual relationships with him, that he answers prayer, then we pray to him without ceasing. And when we know, as James said, that every good and perfect gift is from above, we realise that there is so much to thank God for. And it's only right that we do so. Praise God. Thank you, God. Look to God. Speak to God. He is there and he is good. And finally, listen to God. Verses 19 to 21. Do not quench your spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast what is good. Do not quench your spirit. Now I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one than I did on the others. Um, I just... Each one of those can be unpacked into a whole sermon. Um, This is on prophecy. And we don't see prophecy talked about a lot in the New Testament, but we do actually see it talked about with a lot of clarity. So some of you, if you haven't been here with us very long, you might feel like we don't talk about prophecy a lot. We talk about it as much as it appears in the Bible. Um, Here it's appearing in the Bible, so now we're going to talk about it, and we're going to take this opportunity to dig into it. And when I say it doesn't appear a lot in the New Testament, Paul, John really write with a lot of clarity on it, and we're going to try, that's why we're going to try to spend some time on it now, to bring up that clarity, to give us a good foundation for walking forward with prophecy, to not despise prophecy, to not quench the spirit. But, um, yeah, so let's dig into it. Now, it starts with don't quench the spirit. I think it's an interesting way to phrase it, because clearly the spirit has been, work in the, been at work in the Thessalonian church. Paul says he has seen the power of the Holy Spirit at work in them in chapter 1, verse 5. He says he sees the joy of the Holy Spirit in them in chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, Paul's writing opens with thanking God for all that is happening in the Thessalonian church. Paul's attributing all that goodness to the work of God, to the work of the Holy Spirit, who is God. Clearly the Spirit is at work. The work of the church is in vain if the Holy Spirit isn't at work. Our own pursuits of godly living are in vain if the Holy Spirit isn't at work in us. We cannot live God-filled lives without God. So here in the Thessalonian church, the Spirit hasn't been completely quenched. But he is somehow being held back. There is more goodness. There is more to be God-filled to godly living, to knowing what God has for us. Paul wants to squeeze all the goodness out of the Spirit. Maybe that's a weird way to put it. (laughs) But he wants all of it, and he doesn't want the church or us, our church, to miss out. And so he's saying, hey, don't ignore the Spirit in this very particular way. Um... In the same way that the specificity of some of the rules in our household, like don't pull chopping boards off kitchen counters, might point to some stuff that's going on, um, the specificity of this rule here probably points to the Thessalonian church despising prophecies or diminishing them or avoiding them or something like that. Um, Let's 
dig into what that means some more. Michael Eaton defined prophecy as speaking for God with words given by God. I think that's a nice, simple definition. Speaking for God with words given by God. He's drawing from Deuteronomy 18.18, where God said to Moses, I'll raise up for them, the Israelites, a prophet like you, Moses, uh, from among their brothers. I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Words from God, speaking for God, with words given by God. But uh, Michael Eden also recognised there are different levels of prophecy. Uh, There's something prophetic in all of Scripture, for example. It is God's inspired word. Even though Paul was the author of 1 Thessalonians, even though uh, John wrote some letters and Peter, um, even though we have Luke writing a gospel and Acts, we have, this is still all prophetic. It is God's inspired word. It is intended for all future generations. So the primary way that God speaks to us is through his word. Because all that's in here applies to all of us. All of this instruction, like I said before, we're not the exception to any of this. So even though there is uniqueness to the way God's going to work in our lives and there's uniqueness to our path, most of our experience of God's speaking is going to be through his word, his written word, the Bible. But also, there's more. We don't expect, and Paul doesn't expect, um, the same kind of inspiration, inspired, you know, doctrine-defining, generational prophecy uh, as what formed Scripture uh, so long ago. We're not expecting that kind of thing again until Jesus returns. But Paul Paul is expecting the Spirit to continue to speak uh, in unique ways, to illuminate particular needs, and... um, it is important not to quench those. Paul writes uh, in 1 Corinthians 12 about his expectation of fallible prophets. He says that the Holy Spirit gives gifts as he wills to one prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. So the prophet and the person who knows where they're hearing from, that prophet is hearing from God or hearing from some other spirit, uh, may not be the same person. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. It is the spirit's will to give these gifts, that they be worked out, they be used for his glory, that they be used in cooperation with each other, and not that any one of us be given this absolute authority. Uh, The Apostle John, too, expects false prophecy to appear in the church. In 1 John 4, verse 1, he writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so the Apostles established for us an understanding A word of true prophecy is not always easy to discern, but it is worth discerning. A word of true prophecy is not always easy to discern, but it is worth discerning. And how do we do that? John and Paul both write, test them. Test your prophecies. So, we're about to get real practical here. 
We, want to we don't want to despise prophecy in our church. I don't think we do at large, but I think we, want, we, we can love it more, expect it more, um, and be blessed by it more. So let's talk some practical steps to receiving prophecy. First, how can we prepare ourselves generally so that we don't despise them when they do come? Step one, pray for the Spirit's help to discern his words and his voice. Pray that we would recognize the prophecies of God. The Spirit desires that we will know him and recognize his voice, recognize his words, pray that we be discerners of spirits. And step two, know the word of God, the Bible. The Spirit of God does not disagree with the word of God. Knowing scripture will help us filter out um, false prophecies from true prophecies. Pray for the Spirit's help and know the word of God. Uh, that's to prepare us generally. And then when we receive a prophecy from someone, here are two steps for testing that prophecy. Ask God about it and write it down. Ask God about it and write it down. So ask God, is this true? What should I do with it? Not every prophecy needs to be acted upon, so if you're not sure, it's fine. Wait and see. It's all good. We're all learning and growing, and God isn't trying to trick us or trap us or anything like that. Just wait and see. Yeah. And writing prophecies down, all of them, just it's easy to forget what someone has said about something. Um, what better way to test it than to have evidence that the prophecy was given? This is uh, very similar to something called the scientific method. You make a hypothesis, you test it. Does the hypothesis hold true? So, science and prophecy. Write prophecies down. And over time with humility, we may get a better idea of who has a gift of prophecy, who has a gift of discerning spirits, and honestly, who doesn't yet, or may, may never. As we read before, the spirit apportions gifts to whomever he will. Not everyone's a prophet. Not everyone speaks in tongues. Not everyone discerns spirits. It's all good. So when someone prophesies or you feel that you have been given something straight uh, prophetic, straight from the Spirit of God, ask God about it in prayer and write it down to come back to it later. Finally, we're only really talking about receiving prophecies here. Where are these prophets coming from? Who even is prophesying? So I do want to encourage you, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writes a lot about prophecy there. That's a great place to go. Um, Paul urges the church to desire the gift of prophecy. Pursue love and earnestly, he's writing here, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Nothing against the gift of tongues here. That gift is alive and well in our church, and we are blessed by prophecies as well. But I do want to encourage you and remind myself to actually desire that gift for ourselves. It's a scary one, because what if I 
What if I just run with a vibe that I have, thinking it's the word of God? That's okay. We have systems in place. We write them down and we pray, don't we? So I want to be encouraged, us all to be encouraged, to desire prophecy, ask God for it, expect that we will not all receive it, but that the church can be blessed by it. When we desire that the Spirit works in us and pursue that He works in us in particular ways, He works in in those ways more. He answers prayers, even though He already knows what's good for us before we ask them. The Spirit delights in cooperating with us, including us, having us participate in the building up of the church. So, do not quench the Spirit, test prophecies, and delight in receiving them from God. All right, that was five sermons in one, so let's recap. Pursue a God-filled life because it is God's goodness to us who are already saved by Jesus and we can pursue that God-filled life. This isn't a comprehensive list, but this is the list that Paul gave us just now. One, by being united in peace as brothers and sisters under God. Two, by helping each other grow in maturity in Christ. Three, by abstaining from evil and doing good instead. Always. Four, by looking to God in rejoicing, prayer and thanksgiving. And five, by desiring to hear from God and working to discern what comes from Him. It's a lot, I know, but it really is good. And thankfully, we are not expected to do this all on our own strength. Paul prays in today's passage, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. It's going to appear on the slide there as well. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is right after all those instructions he gave us. God will do it. This is God's will for all of his children, for all of us adopted into his family by believing in Jesus. Sanctify, by the way, is a weird word there. It's just a fancy word for make godly. May the God of peace himself make you godly completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is God's will for his children. If you are not in God's family yet, that may sound exclusive or exclusionary, but actually this is an invitation to be in God's family. It is not withheld from anyone. All it takes is to understand we need Jesus and to believe in him. To believe you need God's forgiveness and to believe Jesus won it for you by dying on the cross. Become a child of God. Fulfill your created purpose by simply resting in the goodness of God and he'll be glorified and you'll be satisfied in him.